Well, we have a little uh, uh, special episode here. No, no Richard about. I don't, I don't know where he went to. Maybe he's trying to find some umbrellas or whatever up there in the Pacific Northwest. I have a, a, a much returning guest on. Why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Andrew Clay Schaefer, and uh, I've been here before. So, yes, we, many we do times. the pivotal thing. So, so you had a uh, you had a blog post last week going over us being involved in Google CRE program, and I think if 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 I understood it correctly, we're basically well, Pivotal Cloud Foundry is the first platform that's that's in that program, and uh, you know I thought it'd be good to have you on to go over what that is, and and I and I think more importantly, and and for me more interestingly than just being in the program. Uh, there, there's something about a lot of opinions and and time-tested advice about how you run and operate and think about how you run your platform and infrastructure that all of that implies. And it'd be interesting, one, just to hear like what what this CRE stuff is and, and how it kind of, uh, I don't know, the, the philosophy of, of operations and, and running a platform that's, uh, that, that it's embedded in it and it embodies. So why don't you start off with, with just kind of covering the basics of, of, of what CRE is and what this program is and what it means for us to be involved in it. Absolutely. There's a, there's a few things we need to build up to before you can really talk about CRE. So the CRE was announced by Google uh, towards the end of last year, and the program is an extension of the SRE. And there's a lot of acronyms involved already, so let's start uh, explaining this stuff. So there's the, the, the storied internal process and, and, and technology that runs Google. And there's a group of, uh, there's a group of people, although you're not, you shouldn't call them system administrators, although a lot of them have th- those types of skills called this, the SREs, which is site reliability engineering. And there's a book that came out and it was recently made available to read for free. And you can read it. If you just search for Google SRE, you can, you can read it for free on web or you can you know, buy it or whatever. And it kind of walks through in in long form, and there's a lot of different contributors, a lot of different chapters, all these different aspects of, of, of SRE and how they think of themselves and, and how they relate to the business and how they they are different or, or, or the same uh, as anyone else doing operations. And, of course, there's this parallel conversation or, or uh maybe even subsuming conversation around DevOps and the trends. And, and my personal career, you know, especially if you've ever heard me or seen me before, is, is sort of taking these, these ideas from the big web and the communities like the DevOps days and the, and the Velocity Conference and, and trying to bring them into the enterprise minds and, and, and bodies so that they can benefit from this kind of emergent dominant paradigm. And when I talk about Cloud native. I always I always talk about the 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 DevOps processes and, and continuous delivery and microservice and the rest of that, and that's all related. So this this SRE framing, which is now very very explicit, it's basically Google walking through their mindset, their process. You know, there's there's obviously not every detail, but it's a 500 page book, and They'll they'll explicitly. In fact, I was when I gave a talk at the Google Next last week. One of the SREs came up to me because I I made this comparison of of SRE um, to DevOps and, and sort of how those those are the same and connect. And 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 some of the SREs were were thanking me for doing that. And and <laughs> I thought it was interesting to see their uh, their mindset. And in the, in the book, it 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 calls 
out the word DevOps a little bit, but they also, I think there's certain people at Google that, that and, and probably lots of places uh, that, that like to think that they invented everything. So watching that evolve and, and having that be really explicit in public is exciting in and of itself. And then the CRE program is taking the process by which the SREs accept applications onto the Google infrastructure and, and, and manage it and, and operate it and extending that to the, the Google Cloud platform customers. So right. they're, they're and, and I think it's worth walking through some of the stuff Pivotal's done to kind of frame that. And it's not, it's not easy. It's not a checklist. You know, you don't, you don't just get a rubber stamp. And we're in the process of going through and, and doing the work with Google. But you, you get a review from the, from the Google CRE team. They go through the application and they're basically looking for the things that would uh, potentially contribute or, or be detrimental to reliability and making the recommendations that, that they would make knowing what they know about distributed systems and, and the Google infrastructure to, to help you meet your service level objectives. So that's, to me, the most interesting thing. And th this is where I think that a lot of the DevOps community would benefit from this is that the SRE process is, is highly quantitized. And in particular, I think that there's a, there's a couple great lessons about monitoring and alerting and all that stuff, but, but some of that is shared by, you know, a lot of the larger DevOps community, but there's this, this air budget idea that's, that's somewhat unique uh, to, to Google, or at least initiated at Google, which is instead of having these emotional disagreements about when and why and, and how someone should be able to deploy what what Google does is between the software engineers and the site reliability engineers is is work through what the business needs from a service level objective. So there's sort of this, you know, three three legged stool that, that figures out what this service needs to be. And they and they want to be realistic because every every nine costs 10 times more than the last nine. So you set some service level objective for your for your application. And then as long as you're within the air budget, so they, they have a bunch of monitoring that is giving them, you know, all the all the stuff and more about their their applications. And one of those things is the errors and, and the availability. And if you exceed your air budget, you can't deploy anymore. And it's not really there's no there's no argument. It's not emotional. It's like, well, you're not meeting your service level objective. So instead of adding new features to this service, what what we all need to do is we need to push the the reliability higher. So we're going to do that work instead of, of new features. And when you're meeting your air budget, you could you could deploy at will. And I think that that transforms a lot of the sort of squishy oh, we want to continue to deliver, but, you know, we're trying to balance the, the life of the developer, productivity developer against the life of the, of the operator and, and gives you this really nice, elegant solution that is ambiguous. So that, that's one of the things I'm excited about. Yeah, that is interesting because it's a way of, uh, I mean, like you're saying, it, it, 
it marries together one of the 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 concepts of, in DevOps, which is uh, if we're going to be running this stuff in production and expect it to work, we should probably have the programmers write things in a way so that it works in production and scaling up and everything. And then and then also to that point is like uh, and no one really well. On the business side, people often don't like working on on spending their development time on features that don't have like a direct user facing thing. So you've got to figure out a way to force them how to uh, I don't know. They even have fanciful terms like functional requirements and things like that. But it's interesting to institutionalize a um, I don't know what you would call it like a trigger that's basically like you need to go and work on on fixing this stuff so that it works in production and, and versus like introducing even more features and, and a stopgap for that. Absolutely. There, there's a few other interesting things about their their um, version of, of DevOps, which is in the so so the the Amazon example, which is very famous. If you build it, you run it, right? So so it's like you have these two pizza teams on a service, and they're kind of responsible for the full life cycle of that service. At, at Google, they took a, a slightly different version, which is you basically run it until you prove that it won't ruin the carpet and then the SREs will run it for you. And if you exceed your air budget, you're probably going to get woken up. But for the most part, if you build to these reliability standards, then, then the operational overhead is negligible, right? So there's, there's this partnership between the software engineers and the SREs where the, where the SREs sort of adopt the operations, and that's that's the process that the that the CRE program is making is making publicly available to the to the Google Cloud. Customers. Oh, I see. That was going to be my next question. Is like I still don't quite understand the difference, but tell me if this if this so so the SRE books is is a little more like internal facing, like how we operate to run things, and the CRE. What's that? It's how Google runs Google. Right, right, and th- whereas the CRE one is like. If if you want an SRE to run your stuff, to use some some language that you like to use every now and then, here's sort of like the contract of stuff you have to do. Like here's here's the way you need to make your application work and and the way that it has to operate, so that you get to that point, like you're saying that that the uh, there's there's not so much ma- there's not a whole bunch of management things that you have to do that are unexpected or out of the ordinary. So so the aspiration for the Google CRE program is that they're going to run your applications for you like like the SREs would. Right. right? That's what the blog post talks about. Yeah. They're going to be on smortems with you and and in order to do that what they're what they're asking you to do is meet these these service level objectives with them, go through and and review your code if they want to if they want to be the ones that are going to be you know jointly responsible for the proper care and feeding of that application they they want to have some understanding and ownership of, of what's there and it goes right back into the the contracts and promises line of of, of reasoning that i've you know and, and i'm borrowing from mark burgess and like some of these other people yeah are inspired by them um and, and i just think i think it's really a gift to see the way that they're framing this stuff and be explicitly in conversations with them about why they think this, you know, will fail this way or, or, or you can expect these kind of service level objectives with this stuff. And then there's also this implicit, and this connects back to the other thing that I've been talking about for the last year, which is a transition in my mindset 
that happened a while ago from automate all the things to what you automate has as big of impact on your on your operational overhead and cost as the fact that you automate and so they're they're saying if you if you automate these things this way if you have these types of architectural characteristics then with these kind of infrastructures and these kind of architectures that your operating cost is effectively negligible and that's pretty exciting right and and so and so like I mean, we were like, what are some examples of, of what the, the, the contract is or the things you have to do or things you, you, you shouldn't do? Like, I don't know. I mean, the, the easiest thing as an example, I don't know if it applies here at all, is like, you know, you got your 12-factor your example. And, and the one on the tip of everyone's tongue is like, don't use local storage, which, which is all simple and makes sense. But like, what are, what are some of the things and ways you have to like architect and, and write your applications and services that they, uh, that they eludicate? So there's there's a, a a bunch of things that are kind of you know straight off of some of the things that the platform's trying to provide, and that's why it gets really interesting when you start thinking about what the service level objective should be for something like Pivotal Cloud Foundry on on Google Cloud Platform. So there's there's a, a bit about telemetry, right? So the if you read the Google SRE book, they have this pyramid of reliability, and the bottom part of the of the pyramid is, is monitoring, and I mean, it's really easy argument to make that if you're not monitoring, if you don't have a baseline, you don't understand what's happening in your systems, then then how do you know if you're doing anything good or bad? And 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 that's the first thing that they they want you to fix. So there's a bunch of baseline around being able to get logs in and out, being able to do you know that kind of telemetry. And then there's there's uh just sort of a methodical taking a part of the of the services how are they set up how will they fail if if this is redundant you know what's the what's the contract that needs to be made about consistency what's the contract that needs to be made about you know these different pieces so it's kind of a all all the things that you imagined architects kind of did when they're designing systems except for Google's doing it with you right <laughs> yeah what i mean to that point uh, without getting too grim, I mean, if, if if you were, I don't know if this is the right framing, but if you were to separate out at least two buckets, one of them is kind of what you were describing is like, uh, here's all of the stuff that you thought was happening, but it turns out people weren't actually doing it or technologically it didn't work out very well. And and then, so there's that bucket of stuff, but then there's another bucket, like, are there any sort of like new or novel things that come into play that that like, I don't know, in the early 2000s, some enterprise architect wouldn't have to worry about, like a way of thinking about how they write their software and architect it? In some ways, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say there's anything that's especially novel to me, um, at least with the exposure I've had to the people that built the big web over the last 10 years and the conversations that happen at a, a Velocity conference or DevOps days. But but the the thing that Google brings to the table is this is this methodological or um, methodical kind of disintegration and then and then re reintegration of everything right so so like they they want and and they're and they're quite adept I mean that was one of the things when you when you see the talks that Onsi gave we should get recorded um, at some point soon. Uh, about the process with the with the Cloud Foundry engineering 
working with with um, the Google. So the the assessment itself was was impressive, just in in terms of the speed and the depth that that the the Google side took apart Cloud Foundry and and had a bunch of meaningful rep, um, recommendations. Right. So it, it's not it's not like a superficial thing. It's like oh yeah, because they're they're the ones. In some sense, the 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 long the long term goal is that that Google is going to be at least partially re responsible for operating your your um, applications with you, and they they don't want to do that. They don't want to take that lightly because it's it's them, right? They're it's they're they're the one getting woken up. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's another thing that like I think I mean it's it sort of comes through though, but basically. And and as you were alluding to, some people don't like using existing terms, but they're to some extent offering some managed service stuff in in this, right? Like you're saying, you can you'll actually be working with people to help you run your stuff, at least at the the, the defined le level that they'll help you at at. at. I, I would I would be reluctant to call it managed services, right? In the sense, it's um like I, I kind of feel like managed services implies this thing that you you've outsourced and kind of handed off right and then you don't have to worry about it i think what google's offering is is we're going to worry about this together and and we're going to we're going to think about this together and we're going to be involved in in the postmortem and we're going to be so so it's not quite managed services and it's and it's offered essentially for free right so it's not like you're paying this thing but google's google's got a lot of experience running a lot of infrastructure and applications, you know, at scale with a low um, operating cost. And, and this is why I think it's really interesting. I, I think it's exciting to see this met methodological uh, approach to building infrastructure, architecture and applications being brought into Pivotal because the, the next phase of this partnership and goal is to be able to have that that kind of rigor be, be part of the labs process as well mm, right but and, i would i would be i would be hard pressed to call it managed services and i would you know if google wanted to call it that at some point maybe but to me it's much more of a of a partnership you're meeting um kind of at the minds and and at the at the level of uh, responsibility together you're not it's not handoff right 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 right, right. But you know, in, the point being, way, actually, that's an interesting point. Let, let me digress one sec. Yeah. So the, I would say, managed services is is in some ways the way that that most people have implemented that, and that connotation that has to me is a manifestation of the old model of IT ops, like the pre DevOps yeah. model. You just outsourced it, right? So you outsource your old style, where what SRE and CRE are bringing is this new collaboration between engineering and operations and Google is willing to be, you know, part of that equation with you. Yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, it's sort of a pain metaphor, but, but classic managed servicing services is a lot more like outsourcing in the sense that there's uh and all the ITIL stuff is kind of built around this. It's always a, a, a fraught thing to bring up, but uh, it's sort of like a black box of a service that you get. Whereas, what you're describing is a lot more. I don't even know if it's a box, but it's a lot more transparent in a white box where you're 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 getting uh, you're getting people to help as the customer. You're getting people to help you run the application, not totally run it for you and just provide a service or, or but I whatever. Think the key the key to keep in mind here 
and I'm going to keep going back to it, and I've been trying to get people to see this in all the DevOps conversations I had, is it, it's, it's actually that front-loaded step that is pushing the operational overhead down, down, down. The reliability is going up, up, up. So now the cost of running that is so low. If you have, if you have all these kind of architectural practices, all this telemetry, then yeah, there's some fault detection, fault remediation that happens, but, but your break fix cycles are short and, and, and infrequent. And, and so it's not so much, oh yeah, they're going to run this with you. It's like, we're going to push the cost of running this down to, to nothing. Right. And, and, and so do you, do you think, do you think it's fair to say, I mean, you, you still hear this all the time that people, uh, people want to like run like Google. And do you, do you think this is like a way to, uh, to like do that essentially? Oh, that's a, that's such a loaded term. <laughs> well, exactly. Hence it being a, a, a good conversation topic. There are things about Google that are uniquely Google. Yeah. Right. And, and, and in some ways that was, that was a unique opportunity that Google has had to solve the problems that only Google has and, and couldn't be Google if they didn't solve them. So do you need to run like Google? Can you conceivably run like Google? I'm, I'm not sure you can. At the same time, there is a lot of information that's available to you that will drastically improve how you do these things that Google's made available. Just like you're saying, you can be inspired by how they run. But it may not be uh, it may not be perfect to get to the point where you run like Google. I mean, that's that's the implicit question in that is like, is it actually a good idea to run like Google or run like Amazon or run like any of these these hyperscale companies? And so, uh, so let's let me frame it two two different ways. So there's a bunch of the the SRE book, which is explicitly calling out to these Google backed services that do things like distributed locks and, and, you know, you're saying, uh, storage, right? Like that's not a easy problem to solve at scale. Distributed storage is, is going to be the bane of all the, the cloud builders until they give up. But the, the, those services are not available to you unless you're inside Google, right? So some of the stuff that Google does because they're Google, you're not going to be able to do unless you're Google. Right. Then then the other side of this is all all these all these big web companies have operational excellence or they wouldn't be they wouldn't be able to do this stuff. Right. So I think Google has probably the farthest developed technology. They they didn't necessarily productize it. They didn't necessarily understand how to bring it to market like Amazon did, but they they probably have at least in my opinion some of the some of the best technology but th- those those things are 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 beneficial to you to see to think and you're going to see more and more and we're already seeing this in the in the pivotal um, framing uh, of these enterprises that want to build what I'll call web scale applications right especially when you start doing the math for what it's going to take to do some of these IOT uh, projects, right? So when you start to have a lot of data that you need to ingest and analyze, then then you start to look a little bit like like Google probably did in the year 2000, 
And, and if you don't kind of think and act like they did, then, then you're probably not going to, it's probably not going to work very well. If you're, if you're going to, if you're trying to ITIL your way to uh, web scale applications, you're, you're probably in trouble. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. It's sort of like there, there's a, you have to have a, uh, a Google class application to really need and get the, the benefits of running like Google rather than just adopting, you know, good practices and, uh, and, uh, operational advancements they've made into your existing things. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what, what, what else, uh, I mean, what are some other like highlights from, from the book? I mean, it is 500 pages. I think you've read it, right? I did read it. So I did so, read it and I, I published a bunch of, um, quotes from it on Twitter. When yeah. I, I, I think you had the suggestion that you should have some, uh, some open mic dramatic readings from the SRE book. Which which should probably be fun. Maybe with some of that in the year two thousand music behind it. Yeah, we should we should make those videos. <laughs> but like like the the idea of the air budget, right? Like that's an interesting concept that I think uh, whether you want to run like Google or not could be adapted into the way you think about uh, doing doing your your operations think, and your software. There's a, there's a value to bringing that kind of dispassionate numerical version of the decision about what you can deploy and when yeah the the other thing there's so many good things actually here here's another thing that sticks out is this notion of toil so the the google sre teams are are highly capable software engineers as well as system administrators and and they're very explicit about how they hire so they 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 put the sres through the same interview that they put their software engineers through and you have to be, and, and you know, the, you can go watch all the Google um, YouTube videos about their their uh, interviews, and and you know that's a uh, that's a whole other topic. Could be a, another hour long uh, podcast. But these these interviews are are extensive and they're intense, and, and you know, people that pass them are, I don't know, they're, they they kind of met a high bar to be part of that Google software effort, and. There, there's this explicit thing that's like, well, if they're close as a software engineer, but they also have deep understanding of some other thing like uh, systems or networks or storage, then, then, they're, then they're eligible for SRE. So they, they, they maybe don't have quite the same standard for the software side, but they have this deep understanding of how computers actually work, which some software people don't always have. And, and the mix in their team is about 50-50 these sort of system specialists and, and then the, the software engineers. And I've, I've heard one of my favorite talks from DevOps days is Todd Underwood, who, who's one of the SRE leaders in Pittsburgh, talking about you, you get a lot of the benefit of SRE if you just took you know, a third of your developers and told them to go make things better. Right. Like, don't don't worry about. <laughs> right. Features, don't worry about just make things better. Make make things more redundant. Think about how they're going to fail. Think about how they scale and then apply software software development to that process. So this this whole setup is to get to this notion of toil in in the SRE work week, month, quarter, whatever. There is a goal, explicit goal that there's no more then 50% of the time spent on toil. And, and toil is what most, most of us would consider 
traditional operations work, right? So break, fix, incident management, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the SRE team, according to the book, when their, when their toil budget is exceeded is, has explicit mandate from, from Google to push the, the whatever kind of window for responsibility, responsibilities and toil back onto the, the dev teams. So it's like, we'll run this for you until, until you're making our life hard. And then you're back, you're back on it with mm. us. Right. Yeah. And, and then it's not explicit. Like it doesn't have a, a story about this happening to anyone. There's no names, but it, it says that it's even possible for you to get kicked out of the SREs basically. Like if your application is not well behaved. So, so just like you had to prove that it was well behaved to get into the SRE, um, program in the first place from the Google side. And it's a big deal inside of, of Google when you do, and you talk to the software engineers there when, when, when you get attention from the SREs, it's a, uh, it's kind of a milestone. You can you can actually get kicked out if you're if you're causing if you're making their life hard, right? So it's sort of a it's it's a true partnership between the developers and operations, but it's also managed by the these numerical contracts. It's like if you if you make my toil go higher than this, like then you're here with me. Like I'm not I'm not doing this for you. We're doing it for together. Yeah, I mean I guess it's a it's an indication of uh the, the, the quality of your software, if there's a lot of toil to have to deal with it. And, and it's sort of like the, uh, uh, one of the things we talked about early on, like, like kind of the error budget. Like if there's, if there's obviously you need to go back and make your software better, <laughs> right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't fit the way that we want to operate. And I assume sort of profitably are operating. So it forces the, in, in that kind of cool headed way that numbers can do, uh, it, it forces you to go back and, and work on quality versus other things. I, I just like that it makes it really explicit to all parties the the goals in a numerical way, a measurable way. So so you don't have the – in some ways, it kind of eliminates some of the finger pointing. And, and you know, that's another chapter. They, they definitely talk about blameless cultures and, and trying to fix and do these things. But by removing – some I think you remove some of the possibility for that by getting to this like really strict numerical value for for how you're going to think about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, in, in a very uh, in a very small wormhole between the two concepts kind of way. I just finished reading that. Um, did I finish reading it? I think I did that book by uh, Mark Schwartz. You know, who's the CIO of of one of the the uh, uh, DHS groups uh, called The Art of Business Value and. Art of business value. Yeah. I just saw Mark. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, you know, usually when you ask, let's, let's call them a, uh, I don't know what to call these people anymore. Like the sort of DevOps, agile, cognoscenti, you know, all the people who are sort of like trying to the intelligentsia of that. And you ask them anything associated with metrics and proving business value. They pull a Obi-Wan Kenobi on you and you're like, <laughs> whoa, I, I don't even realize what happened. Suddenly I don't care about that. Like they never really directly answer the question. And, to be honest, he doesn't really give a super direct answer to it, but he has one of the best. These are not the droids you're looking for answers in that book. And he um, the best, not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> that's right. Like he basically goes over. So finding business value is really hard. Right. And if you're just focused on ROI and all these other things, like the problem is 
to, to try to summarize what his point, business value is unique to every single person and group and company that asks this question. I mean, more or less, it's unique. There's some common patterns. Like if you're a retailer, you probably would like to increase sales, right? Like, so there are some things to do that, but what the business finds valuable in terms of IT can be very difficult to figure out. And he actually offers towards the end of the book, some, some uh, systems of thinking so you can find out what your business value is. But one of the interesting points he makes, and you can kind of see his government background peeking out through this, is like um, in the literature, uh, business value is often associated with what a user wants and the end business, like transacting money between a business and whoever their customer is. But it turns out that business value can be a whole lot of internal things as well. So like I, one of the, my favorite part of the book is is in, in the government, at least in the U.S. government, I don't know how it is elsewhere, we value transparency in agencies doing their work almost above everything else because we just really don't want corruption and all sorts of things. So transparency is a prime deliverable thing and therefore something that has high business value that you wouldn't necessarily think about. And so that's why we tend to have almost too much compliance and auditing and things like that because transparency is extremely important to the citizens and, and the legislature, all this stuff. So, and, and so the way this, that thin wormhole is, is that clearly in, in Google SRE land, one of the business values they have is that we shouldn't have to muck with all this toil driven operation stuff so much. Like that's codified as something that you need to deliver on that you may not traditionally think as a type of business value. And so the point that you keep coming back to is, is they've figured out a way to institutionalize it, to wrap a bureaucracy and a governance around it that's driven by numbers and that has very, uh, very apparent and, and apparently enforced rules. Um, again, but then all the way connect back to the business value that we want is a side effect almost is like we don't want to have to spend a lot of time operating this because if we're doing that, it probably indicates there's not good quality to this software, which even goes back to the business value of you know making the end users happy and running the business well. But it's it's it's, it's a good example of tracing that confusing business value thing down to actual like probably numbers and rules <laughs> somewhere. I, I totally agree, and I think very few people, and I'll, I'll include myself in this statement, really comprehend the unfathomable scale that Google operates at, and and at that scale. The, the smallest inefficiency is literally millions of dollars, right? And so they, they've had a um, kind of philosophical, methodological approach to driving those inefficiencies out of the system right. uh, since the inception. Yeah. So there's another thing that we'll, we can kind of close with that I think is particularly interesting from a, from a pivotal narrative and, and also plays into the kind of the CRE partnership that we're doing with Pivotal Cloud Foundry. There, there's a bunch of chapters that, that talk about all this other stuff to build up to this, but there's kind of this, this closing where it's framing the, you know, sort of the end of the book, but it's framing everything essentially in this language around platforms, right? And, and I posted some of these on, on uh, Twitter and maybe you want to link to them. But there's these quotes from the book where it says things like, in order to ensure that the SREs, you know, don't don't get the the snowflake of the month to show up and then kind of start from from first principles trying to understand what's going on with it every time, that that they've built these these infrastructure and architectural components that the rest of the Google software engineers 
uh, can take advantage of so that when when they when they show up built from these sort of platform components, then it, it's kind of pre-audited. It's kind mm, of pre, right. you know, pre, um, not a, not approved is not the right word, but they, 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 they built them. The SREs built many of these components. And, and that's another quote, or that's another observation I had is that the, the SREs are, are largely architects as much as they are operations. And so when you take that framing around the platforms and the quotes from the book, they're essentially arguing that they built something that's, you know, Google specific, obviously, like like a like a pivotal cloud foundry where you're you're basically giving the the software developers the infrastructure and application components that make doing the right thing with respect to reliability simple and easy. Yeah, I mean, I mean that gets that gets back to those kind of two buckets I was uh, talking about earlier, and uh, I I, th- I think recently when I've been talking with with organizations and enterprise about you know cloud native and pivotal cloud foundry. One of the things that falls in that first bucket, things you thought were happening, is like, well, if we have a standard way of doing all of this, things will run a lot more smoothly, <laughs> right? And 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 in the in the what you were just talking about, I mean, the standard way is here's a bunch of tools that the people who operate it and architectures and ways of write, running your software that we've written that therefore we understand, and therefore things will go a lot more smoothly if you just use those, and. I mean, there's, there's, there are a series of reasons that are more legit and understandable than others in enterprises, particularly like M&A and uh, things where you've got uh, two companies colliding in their architectures. Uh, like, of course, they're going to be different. But, you know, it's... Se- projects, they're so fun. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, it definitely seems like, I mean, this is almost... It's one of those things where, like, when we said you should have a standardized platform that everyone in your organization uses... We actually meant that. It's it's my old. Uh, you should actually floss and eat more fruits and vegetable things, and I think uh, I don't know. I mean, there probably is some interesting subjective studies of this, but it almost seems like if you're not paying attention to it very closely, there's a natural rate of decay where you just lose track of all of that. And it's good every every decade or so to probably go back to that basic principle and try to introduce something. And so, in the point of like, yeah. In the point of not exactly running like Google, but taking ideas for them, it's like, it turns out this principle is extremely handy for all sorts of reasons, that if you standardize on something, you'll uh, you'll win a lot better. So the, the idea you just expressed is, is spot on. The thing that I think has changed in, in, and let's be, like if you go through the history of Cloud Foundry, it, it was Google inspired from its inception. What's changed in the in the new world is that these standards are actually enforced by the software itself. Right. I think in many organizations that, that we work with, they've, they've adopted standards, but those stand, standards are more about checklists and process and signatures, and, and they're very, very few are, are enforced. The policies are not enforced by the software itself, and I think we're moving to a software-defined platform enforcing itself with respect to all these things. And, and there's a, there's another, we're not, we don't have time to go through um, some of this, but it's very interesting um, developments around how these platforms make security easy yeah. and security more, more feasible. Yeah. It, it's all, it's almost like uh, software defined governance, <laughs> right? And I was, I was rewatching um, one of our coworkers, Cornelia Davis, and she gives a good talk about, uh, 
uh, how how a traditional siloed organization um, tra- the the way that it transforms and what it looks like when you're operating in uh, whatever you want to call it DevOps or cloud native way and you have your your product and set of project teams and all, and all that kind of great stuff. But there's there's one instant moment that I I, uh, I I caught this time listening to it where where she essentially goes over this point that you're saying and like whether it's security or compliance or governance. If something's like so important that you have to do it, you should just have the platform do it for you. And it kind of, you know, you should you should basically, to use this term kind of inaccurately, you should automate it or make sure it's enforced by the actual technology instead of the people. And it kind of goes back to one of the, 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 the themes running through a lot of what we've been talking about is, um, I don't know how to phrase this right, but if we want to, if we have something that we want to do and enforce, we need to make sure to write some software that forces us to do that. Metaphorically, in the same way that a compiler will tell you, like, no, that doesn't work, and just won't compile your code. You have these stop gaps for all this governance that used to be uh, more manual and kind of done on a smile, a handshake, and a PowerPoint. And instead, you have the the system doing it all for you. I say this having spent many years of my life as a software developer that if you don't make doing the right thing the easy thing, then many developers being forced to choose between doing something right and doing something right now will not do the right thing. Absolutely. That's almost the credo of the software developer, is do the fastest thing to be done. Or... I think there's a there's a footnote the names, on that. Names have been changed to protect the guilty. Yeah, I, I I think I think there's a footnote that if you're in your twenties, do the slowest thing that maximizes my enjoyment, like building your own platforms and everything and frameworks. So there's a, those are the competing desires of I, th- I think software developers, which uh, we could make a chart how that changes over maybe not age but experience uh, that you not, have. Not inventing fear is a is a great hobby to have in your. <laughs> Yeah. Well, great. Well, before we wrap up, is, is there anything else you want to uh, make sure to call out here? I mean, we covered a lot of ground. I think that there's uh, more to this story. You know, obviously we're we're working through this stuff. We're kind of in the middle of it with Google, but I'm excited to see the 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 language around service level objectives being being created and, and published for for Cloud Foundry, and and then seeing that mentality and mindset permeate all through the rest of the, uh, the pivotal practice. Yeah. Well, great. Well, uh, thanks for being, if people, if pe- I'll try to find links to the, uh, I think they put repost posted the recordings of all their talks and I'll, I'll put in the show notes, uh, a lot of the stuff we talked about, you can always get the show notes at pivotal.io slash podcast. But if people want to, uh, check in on you more, what's, uh, what's the best place to go on the internet? The easiest way to get my attention is little idea on Twitter. And I have open DM, so if you want to tell me something, um, I'd probably respond. Uh, that that's the that's the thing. And I have you know some different talks coming up. I'm doing uh, DevOps days in Denver. There's mm. the spring days that Pivotal is planning. There's probably a couple trips to you know, Cloud Foundry Summit's a little ways out, but that should be uh, something people think about if you're so inclined. Oh yeah, I I, for, I forget to put that little ad in here. We do have spring days. I mean, that's over uh, the next like three or four months, right? In I don't know, ten cities or so. Yeah, we're we're starting to do some grassroots, you know, organic spring. I mean, it's not it's not it's like a different topic than CRE, but it's it's the pivotal <laughs> yeah. uh, Java application framework, and there's a ton of community and adoption, and so we're just trying to kind of give back and invest in in having those community events where they don't have to go through the whole year and they don't have to travel so much. So 
we're, we're targeting um, a couple cities, and then we also have a form where people can request to, to organize spring days locally. And Pivotal is involved, and we're kind of trying to provide a, a, a logistic support, but it's really locally organized. Mm, that's and, nice. And we're, yeah, I mean, it's very similar to some of these other local conferences, but the the spring community is exploding. The interest in you know spring boot and the the microservices and spring cloud and being able to do the integrations and you know service discovery and the rest of it and then the new reactive stuff it's it's really interesting to see that kind of re re uh, i don't know reinvigoration of java like it's a it's a renaissance of of um uh, we'll, we'll we'll say like there's this dark ages of java we won't name any technologies but i i think <laughs> We're we're through that, and we're 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 in a, a a true renaissance with the kind of cloud native architectural patterns that are happening. Yeah. Well, as I was trying to write up in this column I had last month at the Register, like the great thing about Java and other languages have this is that it's it. Uh, I don't know how it happens, but to anthropomorphize it, it allows itself to constantly evolve and shift around. It doesn't kind of get stuck in one way of doing things. So while there, while there may be like uh, bummers that happen here and there for several years, like eventually Java is pretty trustworthy as an overall community of like catching up and evolving and uh, if not leading on, on various things. So it's a, it's a very, uh, very thriving sort of ecosystem. But uh, also before, before I wrap up, uh, we also have the uh, not, not we, but the entire cloud foundry uh, community has the cloud foundry summit coming up on June 13th and 15th. I think, you know, there's a lot of like uh, low-level nerd stuff where they show off technical things and, and you can do that. But what I really like about it uh, is is that there's a lot of actual users and customers of all the various cloud foundries who come. And they not only tell you how awesome they are and how things are working, but many of those talks go over things they've tried out that didn't work well. And, uh, you know, the, the, the failures and the successes as they've tried to uh, switch over their more or less large organization, that's usually what they are, to uh, doing things in uh, – in, in a cloud native kind of way. And if you want to get 20% off, I guess it's Cloud Foundry Silicon Valley. So they have this weird code that's CFSV17 Cote. That's my name, C-O-T-E. <laughs> and and you, can get, uh, you can get a fifth of your registration fee off. I'll probably end up going there. I haven't finalized my travel, but it's, it's, a, it's a good conference. So uh, you should check yeah. that out if you're interested in all of this. It'd be a cloud native good time. Exactly. And, you know, it's that high it's fun that it's attached to over there in Santa Clara. And you're next to the Levi Stadium. Go. Uh, I don't think they sell jeans there. They should really look into that. <laughs> so as always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. If you want to get the uh, the most up-to-date episodes when they come out, what you should do is go over to uh, soundcloud.com slash pivotalconversations. You can find the RSS feed there, or you can listen to it in SoundCloud if you want. They have delightful visuals. Uh, but you just put that in your uh, your iTunes or your Overcast or whatever podcast listening thing you have, and it'll, it'll download them as soon as I upload them. Uh, and we, you can also find it in iTunes and things like that. And we have, uh, if you search around for Pivotal in iTunes, we have uh, two or three other podcasts, particularly one on uh, the world of data and stuff that, that's very interesting and uh, frequently comes out with good stuff. Uh, and also, while you're in there, if you want to leave a review or leave some uh, little stars or whatever kind of coins or resources you want to give us, uh, it's always nice to see that in there, and it helps other people uh, find and discover this content. And uh, I'll put the show notes for this and many other stuff, as I mentioned earlier, many other episodes at pivotal.io slash podcast. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>